He has such what we sing for because we might just get what we ask for. Uh, Biblically, you know, we sing, show me who you are. Biblically, the most common response to coming face to face with God is coming face to face with the floor. And uh, it's a serious thing to come face to face with the holy God. It's also an incredibly wonderful thing as God lifts us up. We're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 9 today, but let's turn our attention to the Lord in prayer before we do. Heavenly Father, we, um, we turn our attention once again to you by means of prayer, to ask you your favor on this time. Lord, um, in, this, in this time, we ask that you would make us what, you're not, what we are not ask that you would forgive us for what we are. We ask that you would show us uh, truths in your word that are unknowable apart from the mind of Christ. And we want to thank you that you have given us your spirit that we might know things, the things that are freely given to us and that you have as believers given us the mind of Christ. And so we ask that you would open our eyes to wonderful things in your word. Lord, we want to pray for our missionaries, Skip and Ruth Sorensen. Lord, we thank you um, as we have been praying for them that you have answered our requests once again, uh, that their support is at 100% and that uh, Ruth, uh, having health problems, now has help while Skip's away and that, uh, that, that her caregiver, Olivia and Ruth, get along very well. We thank you for that, Lord. We want to pray for the Bible college there, for administration details and changes for teaching, not only in the college, but in churches. Lord, would you use that college where they minister to advance your word and your kingdom? Lord, we pray for the Nafziggers as they uh, have reported to us about bringing home, um, or not bringing home, but bringing back with them to their home there in Germany as they, as they traveled um, Ukrainian refugees and dropping them off at various places and experiencing the tears and the sadness and the difficulty of, of what's going on there. We continue to pray for your peace and safety and mostly for the spread of the gospel there, Lord. And um, we ask that you would use them and others, uh, that you would use your people, whether your people be in the Ukraine or in Russia, maybe even in the Russian army, Lord, we don't know. But we would ask that you would use your people to bring about your will and your plan and, and really to, 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 to spread the gospel and to further your kingdom. Lord, show us amazing and wonderful things as we look today at Daniel chapter 9. And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians are perfect. Why the laughter? You think I'm not serious? Okay, so I'm being a little facetious here, right? Uh, Positionally, Christians are perfect. Positionally, in Christ, before God, we're declared righteous. But as anyone who has spent any time in the church knows, Christians are not those who are perfect. But it's a common misconception in the world that we think we are. The reality, though, when you examine the scriptures and particularly the gospels, is it's, it's not those who think they're perfect who come to Christ. 
It's those who are utterly and keenly aware that they're not who desperately rely upon Christ. Christians are not perfect, and it is a common misconception that we believe we are. And had we not understood the book of Daniel rightly, particularly chapter 9, and maybe even particularly chapter 20, or verse 20 of chapter 9, Daniel might support this idea. In fact, I've heard it taught that there are only two people in Scripture whose sin we are never presented with. And that's Jesus, of course we know that's because he had none, and Daniel. But I would beg to differ with that argument. Because here in chapter 9, verse 20, we're told, as Daniel writes, he said, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Now we don't know what sin it is that he's confessing here. But we're never presented with Daniel as this sinless character in Scripture. We see here that he has sinned and he is confessing the sin of his nation. And this is really, really important because as we've gone through the book of Daniel and as we see that kings rise and fall and kingdoms rise and fall, but God is always in control within this plot, within this theme, within this idea, it's really easy to think that the nation of Israel has it all together. Because for chapter after chapter after chapter, we're presented with Israel is good and everyone else is bad. Israel good, Babylon bad. Israel good, Medes bad. Israel good, Persians bad. Except here in chapter 9. And so Daniel chapter 9 stands against all of that. And the, while the, the truth is that the, the truth of Daniel being given to us for our comfort, that is to say that kings and kingdoms rise and fall, but God is always in control, is given to us for our comfort. But Daniel 9 shows us that that's not the real problem. The real problem in Daniel is not wicked kings or wicked kingdoms. That's given to us for our comfort so that we might know God is always in control. But the real problem in Daniel 9 is not a political problem. It's not who's in control. It's not who's on the throne. It's not who's in the White House. It's not who's on the bench of the Supreme Court. Because God is ultimately in control of all things. The real problem presented to us is sin. And here in Daniel 9, we're also given this amazing prophecy that I want to share with you today about the real solution to the real problem of sin. So let's uh, read the book of Daniel, and I want to show you three points today that point out to us the real problem and the real solution. You, you just have a blank set of notes in your, your worship folder there, and I don't have uh, uh, points up here, so again, I'll just make sure that these are very clear. Number one, the need for a Messiah. The first thing we see in Daniel chapter 9 is the need for a Messiah, and this is presented to us in verses 1 through 20. So number one, the need for a Messiah, verses 1 through 20. Let's read those together. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, from the seed of the Medes, Ahasuerus would be who was king in the book of Esther. If you've read Esther, that's a a Babylonian captivity book as well. So this is Darius, um, one of his 
followers, one of his successors, from the seed of the Medes, so before the Persians are ruling, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books in the books the numbers of years concerning which the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Jerusalem, as we open the book of Daniel, was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and was laid waste. He raised it to the ground. R-A-Z-E-D, if you don't know that word, you can look it up later. It means leveled or destroyed, not R-A-I-S-E-D, which would mean built up. Uh, he, he leveled the city of Jerusalem. And as Daniel, being a good student of God's word, is reading Jeremiah, a, a pre-exile prophet, he sees in Jeremiah chapters 25 and 29 that, that the, the, the nation was going to be in captivity for 70 years. In Leviticus chapter 26, as God is giving instructions to the nation of Israel, he says, for six years you can harvest your fields and your crops, but on the seventh year, the land is to be given a Sabbath. It's to be given a Sabbath rest, the same as they were to rest on the seventh day. Interestingly, there's modern research that shows letting land rest every seventh year is really, really good for crops. But in Leviticus 26, God says, you're going to let the land rest every seventh year. And if you don't, what I'm going to do is I'm going to scatter you among the nations and I'm going to let the land rest for all the Sabbaths that you missed. And so in Israel's wandering from God, really here Judah, in their disobedience as they're going into exile for their sin and for their complacency towards God, we read quite uh, clearly in the book of Jeremiah uh, Daniel didn't discern this some strange way. Jeremiah 25 and 29 are clear that they would be in exile for 70 years. But, but this is probably because they had been ignoring God. They had been ignoring his law. They had been ignoring the Sabbath. And so as God sends them into exile for their many sins, now the land is given a chance to rest. And, and, and in fact, Jeremiah 34, even though it's Jeremiah 25 and 29 that tells us that it would be 70 years. Jeremiah 34 tells us that this lack of letting the land have its Sabbath rest was one of the reasons for why the people were in captivity. Bottom line, one of the things we see here is that the people in Judah and Israel already having been taken into captivity 200 years before, or some amount of time before, I think it's about 200 years, uh, had been disobedient to God. They had mingled the, the worship of other gods with their own. Not only other gods, but other forms of worship. They had mingled together with, with the worship of God. They had disobeyed his laws and his regulations and his commands, and so they, he sent them into exile. And Jeremiah, a prophet to Judah, warned the nation of Judah, if you don't get your act together, if you don't obey, if you don't repent, this is going to happen. And here we are with the nation of, of Judah in captivity. And so we must not forget that it is because of the sin of the people and of the nation that they're in this predicament in the first place. And so while Daniel doesn't really focus on calling out what those sins were, 
were reminded of the circumstances that brought them to captivity anyways. God raised up the Chaldeans. He brought them in. He had them destroy Jerusalem. He hauled them off into captivity. And as Daniel is reading Jeremiah, he sees, I was able to see that that we were going to be in captivity for 70 years. Verse 3, so I gave my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. This is just a picture for us of mourning. And I prayed to Yahweh my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and judgments. Moreover, we have not listened to your slaves, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord God, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame as it is to this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries to which you have banished them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. If you remember, the northern kingdom of, of Israel went into captivity in, uh, in Assyria. Now the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by Babylon. Now that kingdom has transferred over to the, the Medes. And, and as Daniel's looking back here, he's writing uh, after the fact. Uh, he's probably writing this while now the, uh, the Persians are in control. And so he says, you've banished them because of their unfaithful deeds and the sins they've committed against you into all these countries. Verse 8, O Yahweh, to us belongs open shame, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we listened to the voice of Yahweh our God, to walk in his laws, which he put before us, through his slaves, the prophets. I want to pause here and say, uh, what, the, part of what keeps coming up here is the prophets. And I, I would say that, that the primary difference between um, Yahweh in Scripture and all other idols is that Yahweh speaks. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who speaks through his prophets. He's a God who speaks through his word. He is not a God who is silent. He is a God who has spoken clearly to his people, whereas idols are so often presented to us as mute, with an inability to speak. Martin Luther, when we think about the Reformation and all of these churches that were filled with all these images of saints and various other pieces and, and, and icons and alleged, I mean, Rome was filled with so many pieces of the cross, you could have made a hundred crosses out of them and alleged breast from the milk of, or milk from the breast of Mary and, and all this stuff that people would go bow down before and try and earn time out of hell before. And, and in, in the Reformation, uh, all of those were cleared out of churches in the Protestant churches. And Martin Luther, as he, as he was taking these out, said, God's house is not to be an eye house. It's to be a mouth house. Because God speaks. 
There is, if I might be so bold here, to cautiously um, warn you about something. And, and I, I'm going to have to be careful here because I'm probably going to step on some toes. But things like the passion of the Christ and the chosen, if understood for what they are, can be very, very helpful. But we live in a world that is prone to like images over words. Uh, so often when I say, have you read a book, the response I get is, is there a movie? There is great danger in trading uninspired film for the inspired word of God. I'm not saying those are bad to watch. Just understand them for what they are. And understand there's great danger in seeing this book through the lens of a film rather than a film through the lens of this book. Because God's timing is perfect. We're told that Jesus came at the fullness of time. And God chose to reveal his son at a time when the primary media of the day was the written word, not visuals. God could have waited till now to send Christ and made a video Bible. But he didn't. So be careful. Let me cautious you there. Caution you there or caution us all there. But the prophets came and they spoke because that's what God does. He speaks. Verse 11, indeed, all Israel has trespassed against your law, even turning aside, not listening to your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. This is Leviticus that I mentioned earlier. Thus, he has established his words, which he had spoken against us and against our judges who judged us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God by turning from our iniquity and acting wisely in your truth. Therefore, Yahweh has watched over the calamity and brought it on us. For Yahweh our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done. But we have not listened to his voice. So now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteousness, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our Father, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your slave and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplication before you on account of any righteousness of our own. We're not asking you because we're obedient. We're not asking you because we're righteous, but on an account of your abundant compassion. O oh Lord, listen. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, give heed and take action. For your own sake, O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin 
and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before Yahweh, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. Oh, there is so much we can learn here. But the thing that we should see is anyone who has transgressed the law of God, anyone who has not obeyed God perfectly, anyone who has disobeyed him at any point is in need of a Messiah. And it's not to the goodness of the people that Daniel appeals. It is not to his own goodness or righteousness, but it is to the compassion of God. Because it's not anything that is in us that makes God desire and delight to save us. It's what's in God. It's what's in God that that causes him to delight in us and to desire us and to save us. And so the first thing we see in the book of Daniel is the need of a Messiah, the need of a Savior. The people are being punished for their sin. And the history of Israel is one that says as soon as God rescues them out of their sin, they're going to go right back to it. Is that not the story of your life and mine as well? We have a need for a Messiah, somebody to rescue us from our sin. And the next thing that happens is Gabriel shows up and and announces that this Messiah is coming. And so secondly, here in Daniel chapter 9, we see the purpose of of the Messiah, the purpose of the Messiah. And ultimately, we'll see this in verse 24, but let's continue reading in verse 21. And while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, take note of that name, whom I had seen in the visions previously, touched me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Then he made me understand and spoke with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the word was issued, so I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So understand the message and gain understanding in what has appeared. Seventy weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. Look with me quickly at verse five or verse twenty-five. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Here is the purpose of the Messiah in verse 25. The, the Messiah, this prince, this ruler whose kingdom will never fade, who is always in control, who will not rise and fall, but has always been risen and always in control and always uh, and has a kingdom that will never fall and will rule for all time. He's coming. And, and we're going to be told the timing of that. But for now, we see the purpose. There's going to be 70 weeks. We'll talk about what that is in just a minute that have been determined. And then there's these six Uh, goals for the Messiah. And at this point, for the next two points, you're going to have to forgive me, we're going to get a little technical here. But, But if you'll humor me, I promise it'll be worth it. Okay? So six goals of the Messiah. Number one, to finish the transgression. To finish the transgression. The Hebrew is complex here, and and transgression in the Hebrew is definite Um, That means it has the word the in front of it, an English lesson. Uh, The definite article is the. 
The indefinite article is a, and an anarthrous noun just has nothing in front of it. So the pulpit is definite. If I say I'm standing behind the pulpit, it means I have a specific pulpit in mind. If I say I'm standing behind a pulpit, that's indefinite, it could be anything. And it's anarthrous if I just say I'm standing behind pulpit. And that could be very, very broad. This is definite, uh, to finish the transgression. What transgression is he talking about here? I'm not sure. But one of the things I know as we see these six goals is there's clearly a now and not yet fulfillment in these. Some of them have been fulfilled at Christ's first coming, and some of, us, some of them have not been fulfilled until his second coming. But if you remember from last week, I told you that Daniel doesn't have the ability because of the mystery of the church to see that, that separation. And so we haven't, I don't think he's able to distinguish those things. It's probably a a reference to Israel's rebellion against God. That the Messiah is going to come to finish the transgression, to to complete uh, this this rebellion of Israel against God. So number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sin. I think this is not yet accomplished. His death certainly uh, atoned for sin, which we'll see in a minute, but, but this, this, this idea that sin has completely ceased and stopped in the world has not yet been realized, but it will someday be realized. Sin will be reduced in the millennium, and it will be eradicated in eternity. And so at some point, the Messiah will make a complete end of sin. Number three, the third thing we're given in the list is to make atonement for iniquity. To make atonement for iniquity. The Hebrew word for atone means to make a covering. To make a covering. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God meets them there in Genesis 3 and he slaughters uh, an animal, sacrificing an animal, and makes skins out of their, or clothing out of their skins, he covers their nakedness. He atones for their nakedness. And in Christ, his death and his resurrection have made a covering for our sin. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Again, this is probably a reference to what has not yet happened. That when Christ returns and after he sets up the millennium and reigns for a thousand years on earth and then ushers us into the eternal state, there, there will be everlasting righteousness among God's people. Number five, to seal up vision and, po- and prophecy. This has two meanings uh, because seals were used in two ways in the ancient world. The first use of a seal was to put on documents. Like you wrote on a scroll, you rolled it up, and you sealed it to preserve it, to, to protect it. And second, seals were used in the same way on the same type of document for authentication to say that this is a real document. So it could be preservation, it could be authentication. Either way, the result is the same. That the death and resurrection of Christ is the seal on all of these prophecies about who Jesus is and what he would do. His death and resurrection and ascension and reign are the validation of all that God's word spoke. And so this is probably both a now and not yet 
reality. Jesus has and will fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies. And his presence, not only in the world, but even amongst his church now, authenticates them all. And we're going to see how, how much the person of Jesus authenticates these prophecies amazingly in just a moment. And number six, to anoint the Holy of Holies. And this is probably, again, a reference to the future millennial temple. Some people think it's, some theologians think it's a reference to the church. Some think it's a reference to the Holy of Holies in a future millennial temple. I don't know. Either way, with all of these things that are somewhat confusing to understand where they fall in the now and not yet of things, here's the point of all six. All the promises of God made in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the Messiah. That's the point. He seals, authenticates, preserves, protects, provides righteousness, anoints his people, ministers to them all of the promises in the Old Testament made to us and to God's people are fulfilled in Christ. And so we see first in verses 1 through 20 the need for a Messiah. We see secondly in verses 21 through 24 the purpose of the Messiah to fulfill the word and prophecies of God and to make atonement for sin and to bring uh, everlasting righteousness. And thirdly, we see the timing of the Messiah. And here's where the technical things get really really amazing. 70 weeks, verse 24, have been determined for your people. Now these weeks are not weeks of seven days like we think of them. In Hebrew, these seven sevens could be a reference to days. It could be a reference to many things. Here, it is a reference to years. That there are 70, uh, 70 weeks of years. So seven times 70, that's how many years we're talking about here. Verse 25, follow along with me and we'll do some math. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now do the math. How many weeks is that? 69. Right? This is 69 years. There's going to be, so, so he's, he's beginning to, va- to, to divide these 70 weeks up for us. There's going, to be, uh, there's going to be seven periods of seven years. Then there's going to be 62 periods of seven years. And this is all uh, going to start, the clock on the timing starts from the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And there's going to be seven periods of seven years, and then 62 periods of seven years, and that's how long it's going to be restored and rebuilt, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So Jerusalem, somebody is going to come along and declare that Jerusalem is to be rebuilt. Then there's going to be a period of seven seven years, and a period of 62 seven years. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are decreed, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will make sacrifice and grain offerings cease, uh, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Are we all thoroughly confused? Yes, I think we are. Let me see if I can make sense of this. So the first seven of seven years, that's 49 years, right, is decreed from the going out of the word to rebuild Jerusalem. So somewhere, we don't have exact dates in ancient history, somewhere around 445 or 444 BC, Artaxerxes decreed that uh, that. The, the temple and the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And we read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Anybody want to fashion a guess how long it took Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem? 49 years. Seven sevens is how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, from there, we see there is supposed to be 62 sevens. Anybody want to do the math on that? I heard, a, I heard somebody over here. 434. That's my daughter. She's correct. Her math skills are much better than mine. I used a calculator. 434 years. 434 years from the time that Jerusalem is rebuilt until it operates as normal, until the Messiah, the prince, is cut off. So if you take 434 and add 62, how many years do you get? Four eighty-three. Four hundred and eighty-three. Now if we take 483 years, or rather, if we take 445 BC, when Artaxerxes decreed that the temple would be rebuilt, and then we fast forward 483 years, where does that get to us? Where does that get us to? That gets us to about 38 AD. Is that when Jesus died? Nope. Is the prophecy wrong? Where's the confusion? Anybody know? The calendar. What calendar do we use? We use a Gregorian calendar. 365 days a year, right? Anybody know how many days are actually in a year? 365 and a quarter, which is why every four years we add a day to the calendar. Did the Jews use a Gregorian calendar? They did not. They used a lunar calendar. How many days in their lunar calendar? 360. So if you adjust the timing here for our Gregorian calendar to their calendar, we move from 483 years to 476 years. Now what happens when you start at 445 or 444 uh, BC and fast forward 476 years? Where do you get? You get to 31 AD. 
and we know our calendar is off by two or three years. So here Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, God has heard your requests. He has heard your supplication. He has heard your prayers. And from the timing of the decree to go and rebuild, there will be 49 years. And then from that point, there will be 434 years where Jerusalem and Israel is operating like normal. And then at the end of that timing, about 31 A.D., the Messiah will be cut off. And all of these six things, these, this atoning for sin and the sealing up of prophecy, all of it will be fulfilled. That puts Jesus' death and resurrection right at the exact timing that Daniel is told. And it should be no surprise to us that Jesus enters right on cue. I wonder if this isn't what Jesus had in mind in Luke chapter 19, verse 42. Anybody know the context of Luke chapter 19? We're going to celebrate it in three weeks. Triumphal entry. It's the triumphal entry. It's a week before Jesus is going to die. And in Luke chapter 19, Verse 42, as Jesus is entering the city, I'll back up to verse 41, we're told this. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, this functioning city, this built city, the city that was rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah and improved by Herod, this great and glorious city, the same city that the disciples told Jesus, hey, look at the city, isn't it amazing? He cried over it, saying, if you knew this day. If you knew in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Why were they hidden? First Corinthians tells us that the truth of who Christ was was hidden from the rulers of that age so that they would crucify the Lord of glory. Why was it hidden? It was hidden so that he would die right on cue. The Jews are still waiting for their Messiah. And here he is, right on cue. What's the one week left over? It's the seven-year tribulation in Revelation. It has not yet happened. When Jesus died, God hit the pause button on the prophecy clock. Why? To bring in the fullness of the Gentiles and then the Jews in the church, this mystery of the Old Testament. And when, when, when God's purposes with that are complete, we'll see Daniel's 70th week. But the reality is, not only do we need a Savior, not only is the Savior promised, but the timing of the Savior, the exact timing of the Messiah is given to us. 500 years. Who knows how long? I didn't do the math on Darius's first year. But some 500 years before his arrival, the angel Gabriel shows up and shares this prophecy with Daniel about when the timing of the Messiah would come. There's only one other place in all of Scripture, other than Daniel, where the name Gabriel appears in the Bible. Anybody know? It's Luke chapter 1. 
Gabriel shows up to Mary and to Zechariah and to Joseph. And there's only one other place where they would have heard the name Gabriel. And that's in Daniel chapter 9, 69 weeks before. Is it any wonder in Luke 1, Simeon is looking for the Messiah? Because he showed up right on cue. I hope you understand that we can have great confidence in who Jesus is. In great confidence that he is the promised Messiah who not only showed up on time, but by his death and resurrection atoned for sin for those who would trust him. Who, like Daniel, would confess their sin and say, Lord, we need your help. To us belongs open shame, but to you, compassion. Save us not because of of who we are, but save us because of who you are. We need a Messiah. His purpose was to atone for sin, and his timing was right on cue. Do you trust him? Do you have great confidence in him? I hope you do. This is our final study in the book of Daniel. We're going to move on from the book of Daniel, but we're not going to move on from prophecy. For the next two weeks, we're going to take a look at Isaiah 53. If you want to pre-read Isaiah 53, back up to about the middle of chapter 52 because that's where Isaiah 53 should start. We're going to spend two weeks looking at the prophecies of Isaiah 53 and then it will be Palm Sunday and Easter. So I would remind us all that some of the steps that we are taking to Easter was first to pick somebody that we wanted to, uh, to join us on Easter and pray for them. Hopefully you're still praying for them and to reach out and relate to reach out and just connect with them relationally somehow, some way. And in a couple weeks, we'll remind you to invite them to Easter with the goal of them coming here and seeing and hearing about this Messiah, this perfect, ruling, reigning, right-on-time Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us not only through the prophets, but through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you you haven't left us wondering who the Messiah was and when he would come. Lord, give us great confidence in who Jesus is. And give us great boldness in declaring him to those around us. Lord, we are not perfect by any stretch of the means. We confess our need of a Savior. We confess to you that we are not only sinful as individuals, we're sinful as a church, we're sinful as a nation, and we appeal not to our goodness for you to save us, but to your compassion and your kindness. Lord, thank you that in great compassion you did send Christ to atone for iniquity, to fulfill all of these prophecies to rescue us not not only from sin and from ourselves, but to rescue us from your wrath. And Lord, that that truth just amazes me that, that you, ultimately what we needed saving from was you, from your wrath, 
from your discipline and your consequence on us. And yet because you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and compassion, you you devised a way to bear your own wrath that should have been spent on us, to rescue us from yourself, and then to love us and cherish us and prize us. Lord, you truly are an amazing God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us willingly and joyfully, even at great personal expense. May we have great faith and confidence and trust in you for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen.